Good morning, everyone. Glad that we are here and able to worship our God. And uh, I, I say, you know, Brent, I really appreciated your words. Where is Brent? Thank you, Brent. Appreciate it very much. Um, your words were wonderful. I only got one thing. When you get bored, <laughs> look outside. That's all I got from what, you're, what you said. I apologize. I'm sure it was wonderful words, though. <laughs> all right. No, this is a, a beautiful opportunity for us as we are talking naturally about the resurrection. In fact, the last two weeks, we were looking at various aspects of the resurrection, whether you realize it or not. See, the last two weeks, we've been talking about the illusions with regard to baptism, and we looked at being crucified with Christ, with the opportunity for, for Jesus Christ to live within and through our lives, and that's the story of the cross. It really is. And those are the things that we are talking about in this morning in, in concluding this mini-series as we deal with a resurrected Christ in and through our lives. So here's the thing. When you go back to the very beginning, and we're going to finish with the beginning, interestingly enough, right? you got the picture of the tree of life, right? And that's what we're looking at, life. And when we look at this concept that is given for us in the book of Romans, and we're going to look at this passage again this morning, but that's the picture that we have, right? Where we, we put to death that old man of sin, and we rise to walk in newness of life. And those are the things that we're focused in on when we're dealing with that, that subject matter with regard to baptism, going down into that watery grave and rising up to this new life. And, and so when we're dealing with these things... Sometimes you, you get the simplicity, as we spoke of last week, of a command, but you get the beautiful riches of imagery that show us a beautiful picture of good news. And that's what I'm hoping that we get from these lessons that we have been looking at. So when we're talking about resurrection, it is the fundamental aspect, the bedrock of our faith. That's the reason why, whether it was Don or Brent, and speaking of the fact that the world in the name of Christianity, recognizes this day esteemed even above other Sundays. That's a reality, right? And you have those on a spectrum that look at that reality, and, and thus this is why they would come and worship God on this one Sunday throughout the year. And then you have on the other end of that spectrum, as was brought out by both Don and by Brant, that you have brethren that come together every Lord's Day recognizing the great urgency in the picture of a resurrected Christ in whom we worship. So that's what you see, right? Those, that contrast, it's because it is the bedrock, and that's the reason why we do that. Well, here's the thing. Just as Joshua's reading for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you have individuals that the Apostle Paul is writing to, those who profess to be Christians, that did not see the bedrock of their faith in that light. They might have believed in Jesus, but they did not believe in the resurrection. And so what we saw in, in that writing that Josh led for us was, you know, we believe, just as we had preached to you from the very beginning, that Jesus died and rose again. And he makes that case that Jesus not only did that for our sins, but that those who are in Christ would enjoy that resurrected life. That's what you see in that text. 
and either you believe it or you do not. And for those who believe only in this life, he says, well, then guess what? We are the most pitiable, right? Pitiable among all men. In fact, it's a farce for us to even be here this morning if all we do is believe in Jesus Christ in this life only. We're wasting our time. That's his point. We may as well simply eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We go to the grave and it's all over. But it's because we believe in a resurrection. We believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. That our walk that is tied to his is crucially important. And so that's the reason for these lessons. And so that's the reason why we were looking at the allusions that we were talking about regarding baptism and the imagery portrayed in the New Testament scriptures. That's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. And we looked at the meaningfulness, if you will, of a crucified life in Christ Jesus. What was beautiful is to see so many comments, conversations that stemmed from the sermon last week that has been helpful for many who are looking at their walk with Christ and seeing that imagery portrayed all throughout the scriptures. And I'm hoping this morning we'll do the same as we focus in on this aspect of the newness of life, right? And I'm, what I'm hoping is that when we get done with this sermon, if you go through various Bible passages, particularly in the New Testament, but not limited to the New Testament, but when you read these passages, you can all go back to these three sermons, and I'm hoping that you'll do that. For those who are here and only this morning, I hope you see that this lesson does and can stand alone on its own in this concept of what it means to rise up out of that watery grave to something called a newness of life. And so let's look at some of these passages. All right. So if we're talking about that concept last week where you go down into that water and you, you put to death that old man of sin, that's the, by faith that we attach ourselves to the necessity that we needed a Savior, Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, right? This going down into the water and putting that old man of sin is in direct contrast to the man that comes up out of that water. We're told that the old man walks according to the flesh, right? Galatians chapter 5, when you read verse 16 all the way through verse 24, the apostle Paul writes to the church there and contrasts those who walk by the Spirit of God and those who walk according to the flesh. And in that letter, amongst other letters, he refers to that old man of the flesh and the new man that is in the Spirit. He does that whether it's the churches in Galatia or the church at Rome or in Colossae, Ephesians, you have that contrast, right? So you've got the old man walking according to the flesh. The new man has a transformed mind. He thinks differently because he's a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells brethren at Rome in Romans chapter 12, right? Verses 1 and 2. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because that's what we're supposed to be. If we've gone down and put that man, um, the old man of sin to death, this new man has a new mind and a new heart. He has a new way of living. And it looks nothing like what it used to look like. And what sometimes for us modern Christians and the mindset that we have today, especially if we've been raised in a family of believers, is like, well, what change is there? I just keep on doing whatever I've done just after I was baptized. 
We're talking about a lifelong process that may have immediate results for many, and for some, it's a gradual change where the mind is transformed, where what you may have done, you may have done all the quote-unquote right things, but the heart may not have been there. The heart may have been, or the heart may have been such in a manner where we still look like, as far as God is concerned, not us, like we walk according to the flesh. What we want is actual transformed minds. When we, when we see each other, we're like, that person is really turned into the image of our Savior. He or she walks like the way Jesus walked and speaks the way he spoke and do, do things and say things that are reflective of our Savior. And so that's what we're talking about, a transformed life, right? Going from death to life. And that's what we see. In fact, I want you to read with me in Romans chapter 8 this picture of this contrast. And it's all stemming from chapter 6 that we're talking about, right? Chapter 6, you're buried with Christ, you're raised in newness of life, and as a result, you're no longer slaves to sin because you're freed from that life. And now you have a new life in righteousness. And in chapter 7, he says, but there is this war that goes on, similar to Galatians 5, verse 16 through 24, that battle between the flesh and the spirit. Right? So in chapter 7, he deals with that aspect. But in chapter 8, particularly in the last verse of chapter 7, going into chapter 8, he makes it abundantly clear. Those who are in Christ Jesus walk in this new way of living. And that's what I want us to read about here in chapter 8. So I'm going to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, and I want you to read with me. He says, well, let me back up to verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse um, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, this body of sin? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, my transformed mind, if I could add. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so then, brothers, 
We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I hope you got in all of that, that process of being crucified to death and raised to walk in newness of life. Because that's the picture that is given in this text, even if it's not saying it explicitly. That's a picture of a contrast from the old man to the new man of sin. So that's what we're seeing here when we're talking about this newness of life type of a walk. Well, what does it look like specifically? Right? Sometimes we hear the words and we get real generalized with what we say when we're talking about living a new life, right? Follow Jesus. Follow his commandments. Well, what were his actual commandments? What do we see in his life that we would actually pattern our lives after him? Well, you can go from the very beginning, right? Very beginning of his ministry, if we can call it that way, when, when he begins his service on, en route to the cross, and in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, as Jesus is approaching John the Baptist in the wilderness at the Jordan River, whether you get that in, or in John chapter 1, but in Matthew chapter 3, here is Jesus, and he goes up to John the Baptist so that he would be baptized by him. He says, permit it to thus be so, that I may fulfill all righteousness. And so we see him from that moment after being baptized we see him living his life before God, right? And remember when he comes up out of the water, what God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's exactly the way he lived his life. But what does that look like, right? We could have listed a, a whole host of passages right in here, bunch of passages. But Matthew chapter 14, I thought, summarized everything very, very well. In Matthew chapter 14, I want, to, I want you to read with me here in that text, because what you see here is the compassion Jesus has as he looks at mankind. And I want you to see in this text what his life was like, because many other passages will point aspects of this passage out in the writer's um, pens, if you will. So, Matthew 14... Beginning here in verse 13, notice what he says. Now, when Jesus heard this, with regard to the death of John the Baptist, that is, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and a compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men, beside women and children. 
What's interesting about this passage is sometimes we, we make more than what's really there. And what I mean by that is there are some in the name of, of serving Jesus Christ will look beyond this passage and say, you know, Jesus wasn't really interested in their actual welfare. He's interested in their souls. I would say he's interested in both. It's not one or the other. It's not just their physical well-being. And it's not just their eternal well-being. It was both. And it's right there in the text for us to see. And it's not just this text. Look at the hundreds of other illustrations throughout the Gospels. And what you will see is Jesus having compassion on them and their current situation, let alone their eternal. That's the kind of love that he had for his fellow man. Sometimes it gets lost on the Lord's church. We get interested about everything that goes on within four walls of a building. And here's Jesus, day-to-day living, 24-7, well pleasing the Father. It is no wonder, brethren, you have passages like Matthew chapter 25 that go hand-in-hand with what we just read here in Matthew 14. And I allude to that passage many, many times. You've known, right? Where he talks about those who are, who are hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison or sick or whatever the situation is. And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. That's the day of judgment. And that's the passage that he uses, right? Matthew does in writing his, his gospel account of those who are going to stand before the king of kings, before the God, well, God of our universe. He said, these are those who are at my right hand that come into life and those who are not, those who did not live this way. So we're talking about patterning our lives after Jesus. Look at your day-to-day life. Does it look something like this? In fact, Luke writes in Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, a passage that gives us this very sense. Luke chapter 22, of course, Jesus here is on his, his last hours of life, if you will, here on earth. And there's a beautiful saying with regard to our Savior. I don't know where my eyes went, excuse me. Here's what he says in verse 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Here's a son of God coming in the likeness of man and feeling all its temptations and pressures of life. And in that moment, in this garden, when he's praying fervently, tearfully over what is to befall him, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How easy is it, whether it's me or you, to write off someone else and to not have compassion that Jesus clearly displayed throughout his life? If you want to pattern your life after Jesus, you talk about having examples littered throughout Scripture, specifically taught 
as doctrine, you will see this picture of people who are cared for by those who belong to God for their well-being both here and for eternity. That's what you see. That's the pattern that is there. And so when we look at our walk, what does it look like when, when we claim to be followers of Jesus? How do we look at people who are in this world? This morning in our Bible study, when we're, we're studying in the book of Jonah, Steve was making a point amongst others that had made similar points of how sometimes we, in fact, David said something similar, how we, being children of God, likened unto Jonah, can be guilty of prejudging others, right? Look at the way they live their lives. So wicked. Don't even look at mine. It's not that we don't look at ours. We'd rather not look at ours. We'd rather look at someone else who's more evil than I, and thus I am better. Even if I won't say it in that way, it may come across to everyone else. From the outside perspective looking in, it may look like we may seem to be better than others and have a sense of self-righteousness. Scripture tells us in John chapter 3, right, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. And we're to, we're to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what verse 17 following says. But God so loved this world. Well, what about us? We talk about loving the world. Are we reaching out to the world? See, many churches are so inward focused. And our Savior showed us how to be outward focused. That is why you have passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, you know, don't have fellowship with those who are immoral, but I did not mean those of the world. Otherwise, how else can we go to the world? Right? Or why when you look at a mature Christian, like someone who is going to serve as an elder, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you look at the qualifications, why? Because these are people who are outward focused mature in their walk with God, and they have a beautiful, solid reputation as followers of Jesus. 1 Timothy 3, verse 7, that they have a good report from those outside, if I can paraphrase, outside the church. Right? What kind of name do we have? If we're following after Jesus, what, do, what does our walk look like toward those who are of this world? Or how about this? Sometimes we have to kind of grow before we can go out into the world and, and share the life that Jesus shared with others. Sometimes we have to learn how to get along with each other inside the body of Christ, right? The church is filled with division from time to time over the centuries ever since Jesus hung on the cross. Just read the book of Acts. We'll see it. And read all the letters that the apostle Paul wrote and you will see it. In fact, in James, in his letter, notice what he writes in James chapter 4. And we see the need then, if we're going to be like Jesus Christ, how did he work with his brethren? Well, how do we work with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Hopefully in similar fashion. In James chapter 4, notice what is said here in verses 11 and 12 of our Savior. I mean, excuse me, of, of each other. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Don't slander each other. The one who speaks against a brother 
or judges his brother also speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you then to judge your neighbor? See how he goes back and forth between the idea of being a neighbor and a brother? Because they go hand in hand. Whether you treat the people in the world or, or brethren, here's how you live your life. You let the judge of all judges judge. It does not mean that we don't have a place in how we live our lives that, that give idea to judgment, right? We have to live with righteous judgment. Scripture tells us, Matthew chapter 7. But the idea of that we would be the place of God and judge someone, interestingly enough, especially when it's brethren that would disagree with you and you think they're wrong about something, look at their life. Do they, do they love God? Are they trying to walk with God? And for some of us, the mindset is, no, because they would do this or they would do that, right? And had nothing to do with morality necessarily. They might get it wrong as far as you and I may be concerned about a specific teaching of Scripture. Let that sink in, brethren. We're talking about others who claim to be brethren who are, as far as you can see with your eyes, trying to live for the glory of God, and you disagree. Let me turn it around so that it's easier to see, easier to understand. What if you are the one that someone else in the name of Jesus Christ looks at you and condemns you because you do something, say something, or think something that they believe to be wrong and would not want fellowship with you because you don't love God, you don't respect his word, you don't honor him, and so on and so forth. Let that sink in. What would you say to them? I can tell you what I would say. I would say, I'm glad you're not my judge. I'm glad I have a judge who's able to make me stand or make me fall. And he's a gracious God who knows my weaknesses, my shortcomings, my limitations of every sort. And I will beg for his grace. And you will need it every bit as much as me. That's what I would say. That doesn't mean that we'll come to agreement on everything as a result of that conversation. But I guarantee you, my look at that brother, whether he is to my right or to my left, is still my brother. Brethren, you have to realize this was a problem that was going on in the first century church. And that's the reason why we have passages like Romans chapter 14. And if I can just divert to that passage, even though it's not in our outline, for a second, I want you to use it even for something as... Recent as this morning's service. Romans chapter 14. I want to read the first few verses and see if you can follow along with what's being said. And I could, I'll even use something that took place this morning as a result. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while another, or the weak person, believes he can only eat vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment 
on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be able, or and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Get what he's saying? We get so caught up in minutia that we, get, we miss the big picture, right? And we may say, well, one day is esteemed above another, and we can make, look to other people going, yep, like today. Right? Some would say Happy Easter, and others would say, don't ever say that word. It's, I, mean, I, I was going through a series of, of movies that go through the whole dark ages to the, um, the enlightened age, the golden age, and see how the Catholic Church, the Church of England, um, versus the, the Protestants and the Reformation that was going on during that time, and, and how they would treat each other. And we might have others going, yeah, but they're both wrong. No different than someone else saying, you're wrong. There are those that are going to try to do the will of God, and we may not agree with them. We may think it to be wrong about whatever practices that are done in a church service. But make no mistake, and I mean this as sincerely as I can say it, there are many doing it in service to the Lord. Not doing it to say, I don't care what your word says, whatever goes. That may take place. It may be the case. But I don't think that's the spirit that many have in trying to serve the Lord. And so my point being is that when we're talking about what life looks like in Christ Jesus, this newness of life, it does entail how we esteem one another. Do we prefer, do we honor one another? as better than ourselves? Do we give people benefit of the doubt that what they're trying to do is to serve the Lord and thus we can open up our Bibles and we can study them and go, well, you know what? Could I be wrong? Or is it I'm right and everyone else is wrong? Which spirit do you have? Which is the spirit that God wants us to have? John chapter 13, after Jesus got done Washing the feet of his own disciples, he uses it as an example of how they should treat one another. He, he used the example of actual physical service, of all the things he could have chosen as important. And he says, you go and do likewise. Well, in John chapter 13, we go further in the scriptures. Look at verse 34 and 35. I want you to see what he says here. We'll be getting close to our, the ending of our sermon, but I want you to see the reality that is played out after Jesus teaches his disciples when he tells them this in verse 34 and 35. John chapter 13. 
Let me back up to verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, that where I am going, you cannot come. Therefore, a new commandment I give to you. This is the newness of life commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also all to love one another. And by this, all people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When the world looks at those who call themselves Christians and see such great division. Now, mind you, there are going to be times when there must be divisions, must be factions. There are going to be times when truth is not being upheld. And in fact, that's usually what's said even down to the most minute level, right? I'm just holding up truth. That always should be our desire. Look at those who are living in gross sin of immorality. Gross sin. And you'll see it condemned here in Scripture. Things that people would question, even if you yourself may not question, how are they treated? What was Paul teaching? What was Paul teaching in the name of Jesus Christ who he was trying to follow? And you will see that very concept of them trying to have love for one another. That's what newness of life looks like. It's very different. It's very conciliatory. In other words, you're trying to be one. You're trying to have harmony. You're trying to have fellowship. That's the picture of what takes place when you go down into the water and you put that old man that is according to the flesh to death. So when you come up out of that water and you live your life, this is what life really looks like. It's one that actually creates life. It sustains life by the way of living this newness of life. Huge contrast. That's the imagery when you come up out of that watery grave called baptism. Here's what I'll finish you with, this passage. When we're talking about this concept of baptism, just as was read last week in Romans chapter 6, the whole import of that picture of them going into the water and coming up out of the water was a picture of living a new life where the old man is crucified and the new man reigns over your life. Beautiful picture. That's what we see. But for those of us, since we're trying to grow in our knowledge of God's word so that we can live this life of newness of life, I want you to see this. So remember, as was mentioned this morning in our Bible study, Ben was asking, are we going to allude to some things in the book of Jonah? And the answer is yes, as we will get into it on Wednesday night. This is just a small sampling right here. When you contrast the actual physical death and resurrection of Jesus and the death and resurrection that took place amongst others and that which is being taught, an actual death and actual resurrection, if you will, or physical death and then this resurrection unto life, look at these parallels, whether they be illusions or types or shadows, whatever you have, whether you have the idea of going to sleep and waking up, the idea of night and morning, the idea of winter and spring or dark and light, good and evil, death and life, all of these things are interconnected. The dots start coming together. And it's not limited to this subject that we call baptism. Look at the overall picture of, of, of learning our relationship with God. And it's right there, all in these pages, every page of the Bible. They're all there. 
I'm picking up on these two points, and it goes back from two weeks ago. Remember in two weeks ago when we were talking about what are some of these illusions from Genesis chapter 1, going all the way through the Old Testament scriptures that brought us into the New Testament. And what we saw was, remember, in the beginning is creation. Well, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he writes to the church at Rome, and he has this concept of the first Adam and second Adam, right? The first Adam, born of dust, second of the spirit. Do you get it? One is of the flesh, and one is of the spirit. One is mortal, one is immortal. One is going to die, the other continues to live. That's what you get out of those passages in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Right? The old man condemned, the new man justified through Jesus. We looked at the concept of division and cleansing a couple weeks ago as well. Other illusions. Right? The idea that you got the separation of, of sleeping and waking, of night and morning, winter, spring, dark light, good, evil, death, life. All those. There's division. Right? Genesis chapter 1. He divided light from darkness. And what he called it? He called one day and one night. And the evening and the morning were the first day, second day, so on and so forth. All those illusions. And that division gave way to this con concept that if we're going to stand before our God, we stand justified having been cleansed. So we looked at the temple. We looked at what it was like to be, to be in the presence of God as one of his priests. And what are we told in the New Testament? Christian? We're a kingdom of priests. We are holy, royal priesthood of God. And we stand cleansed by the righteous blood of Jesus. That's what we have. And if that's what we have objectively through Scripture, then subjectively we follow God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our might, right? With all of our minds. That's what we do because we've put to death that old man. Now, I said we're going to finish this with the beginning. Remember the very beginning, the very first story between God and mankind after God has established his, quote, unquote, his law, right? Of every tree you can freely eat, but of the one in the garden. Remember what happened? He was taken out of, driven away from the garden. And for centuries or for millennial Man has been trying to get into the very presence of God, drawing near to God. And that's what you see in the vision of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. When he has this Eden-like image of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to man. And then the voice from heaven saying that God will begin to dwell with man. And where is he? He is back into the very presence of God, having access to the tree of life. That's the picture. And all that is tied to the concept of division where we put to, to death the old man. He's judged, he's condemned, he's put to death. And the new man that rises to walk in newness of life, the one who lives like Jesus. That's the picture. And so in closing, when you see why we talk about baptism... It's not just some command to go down to the water and come up out of the water because Jesus commanded it to his disciples and the disciples commanded it to those they preached the gospel to. It's this beautiful, rich imagery behind it of all that it entails. And this is what you're committing yourself to when you're saying, Lord, I believe. 
Just as Jesus rose from the dead, I believe that my God will raise me up, not only to walk in newness of life, but to have everlasting life. That's what makes the good news good. That's what allows so many people who are lost in this world that are grasping for things. That's the reason why Don was praying for the men that we study with, let alone the very other many men and women that we study with, whether it's in the jails or outside these four walls. Every day. That we show them the love of Christ and we teach them of his good news. Everlasting life. Remember that one uh, Muslim that I told you about? that wants to be our brother in Christ, this is the result of showing the love of Christ, not just just the gospel message of of truth, if you will, but he genuinely believes that we have a care for him. That's why he wants to become a child of God. He sees that kind of love and wants that kind of love. Or the people that we have talked to and studied with over the years here in, in Franklin, same thing. And so we're talking about the belief that Jesus rose from the dead, that we might rise to also walk in newness of life patterned after him. The invitation is Christ arose, and if you believe that he did, and he did for your sins, and that you can be transformed into living like him, then the invitation is for you. And I pray that you'll accept it. And I pray that you'll turn back to the Lord if you need to. Use this wonderful, blessed opportunity to return to him. Maybe we'll pray for you if you want. But do that as together we stand and sing.